Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast. I can't believe we've reached episode lucky number 13. And um, I'm sitting in a studio in Topanga Canyon, and I'm really excited to welcome Joey Peters to the podcast. Thank you very much, Eddie. I'm happy to be here with you. Are you a little freaked out? Are you okay? No, I'm totally fine. I'm great to see you in person. Yeah, it's not just on the interwebs. <laughs> not on Instagram. And we get to have coffee and laugh and talk about the past, the present, and the future. Right. We were actually talking about quite a, quite a lot of interesting things before I started hitting record. So we need to sort of capture those cool moments again. <laughs> That'll never happen. <laughs> you know how that is in yeah, the creative right, world. Right. I know that's the thing. That's the first take. The You, you want to capture that first take as much as you can that's right well when the cameras are on you know all genius leaves that's what happens right now we hope to recreate that um we'll do our best do you talk yes yeah exactly so um we're in topanga canyon uh today recording and i have i have a lot of interesting history with with this area and as i was driving up today well first of all let me just quickly talk if you're listening to the podcast because Joey's on and you have no interest in listening to me. I totally understand that because Joey, um, there's, I actually have a lot of respect for Joey in many ways. Thank you very much. And the podcast is about creating more conversation. I think Instagram is, is sort of ruining, ruining the world. Um, and I know that's sort of a, um, an apocalyptic sort of stance. And I, and I realize on the surface, Instagram is, is pretty, it seems Harmless, but I, I do think what's happening is that people are spending more time curating their Instagram account and looking a specific way, and the art of actually having face-to-face conversations is is drifting and going away. So I wanted to create a podcast where I'm actually having interesting, hopefully interesting conversations with yoga teachers, artists, musicians, DJs, people that are in my life that I really respect, and I think they have a lot of interesting things going on. That sounds good. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the idea. Yeah. Um, so, it gets you out of the house. You <laughs> yes. get a free cup of coffee. <laughs> I know. I got and you get to talk free with cu- me yes. for a few hours. Yeah. So what could be better? Actually, that's an ideal day, Eddie. <laughs> I, Wait till you get the bill. <laughs> it's actually, we're going to be talking for six hours. So it's... Oh. Uh, I know. I'm God, sorry. What did I get myself into? <laughs> um, well, I want to start off by talking about 1994. And you... I found out about you um, through a friend of mine who lived in Malibu. You were the drummer of one of my favorite bands in the 90s, Grantley Buffalo. Thank you. And so it was 1994, and I was driving up to Panga Canyon, visiting my uncle and aunt who lived in uh, Calabasas at the time, Stunt Road off of Mulholland Highway. Right. Um, and actually their house, their neighbor, you're going to love this, was Brett Michaels ah. from Poison. <laughs> Excellent. I know. It's freaking awesome. crazy. So we're driving. I'm driving down um, to Panga Canyon, and I get a call, probably one of the first cell phones ever created right. from my roommate at the time, letting me know that Kurt Cobain had just killed himself. Which, And I remember pulling over just like stuns because oh. I was obsessed with Nirvana and Pearl Jam and, and all these oh, bands yeah. and Soundgarden and Chris Cornell and Alice in Chains was, I was just upset. And my roommate in college, my freshman year was from Seattle in right. 1990 or 91. And none of these bands, nobody knew about them. Right. Um, but then that next year, Pearl Jam is on Saturday night live and it just, it explodes. So 
amongst all these Seattle bands, I'm living in Malibu, like 95, 96, 97. And my friend Jen um, introduces me to this band, Grantley Buffalo. And she plays me the song Mockingbird. And at the time, I was really into singing falsetto, and I was writing my own oh. music for the first time. Oh, nice. And so Grant, uh, the lead singer of Grantley Buffalo, uh, was really had this beautiful voice. Right. And I was just in awe. And I, um, and we went to Largo a few times to see oh, yeah. the band. That was the heyday. That was our hangout. Right. And- yeah. So he, that so that's sort of the the um, the preface or, or to to you sitting here and I just think it's so as I said at the very beginning of the podcast I was a huge fan of yours in the band I was and I and I brought up you know Jubilee and, and Shallow right. End and so I want to play a couple songs uh, on the podcast today so I appreciate you making the time to come on the show. And, and talk about that, talk about what you're doing now, talk yeah. about how Instagram is amazing, completely incredible, <laughs> how you love it. Right. So I think. Where do you want to start? Well, I want to start by first talking about. I read about you mm-hmm. and you grew up in San Francisco, uh, actually in Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz, close to San Francisco. Yeah. So, um, I mean, originally from New York. We decamp out of New York okay. and uh, live in Hawaii. Well, that's the thing that I found that was interesting. Based on the story, either on your website or something, it said something like your family went to Hawaii, but you stayed back. Is that is there truth to that? Um, as a kid, we, we went to Hawaii when I was a youngster, came to Santa Cruz so I could finish school. Okay. And um, my, my high school years and, and college were in Santa Cruz, and Santa Cruz was awesome at the right. time. My God. And that's when I started drumming. And I mean, there was such a great club in Santa Cruz. I could see Neil Young, the psychedelic furs, Bow Wow Wow, Chris Isaac. I mean, there's like, wow. you know, everybody came through and played at the Catalyst. And I started drumming. Oh, yeah. I played at the Catalyst yeah. like 15 years it's ago. It's amazing. And, and, you know, I started drumming. I was playing in like 10 bands in Santa Cruz, a jazz band, a right. punk band. I mean, I played in this crazy hardcore punk Band. We would go to San Francisco when I was 16 and played with X and Black Flag and the Circle Jerks. And then I would be playing jazz on the weekends in Monterey. Well, where did you learn to play the drums? Or how, because like, I just picked drums up when I was like 12 and started taking lessons. And, okay. You know, just fell into it and played in bands. And but you're obviously were a really... I'm, not, I'm only saying were because we're talking about the past. You were obviously a pretty big deal and really a really good drummer. Because you're playing in all these bands, I mean... Evidently, it's something. <laughs> yeah, but were you always like a natural, or was it easy to pick up, or... I don't really know. I just kind of got into it when I was 12, and then just seemed like a good thing to do, and never really thought anything of it, you know, um, just got into it. I mean, I started... One of the bands I played in was this rhythm and blues band, and we... Um, I remember we played with John Lee Hooker. We were Charlie Musselwhite's backup band, and... Charlie was uh, not as healthy as he is today, but we would go to Larry Blake's and play in Berkeley. We played the Monterey Jazz Festival with okay. the, with Charlie. So I got like a real schooling kind of by just throwing myself into playing different kinds of music. Right. <clears throat> and that seemed like the best way to do it. And that's what I was doing for really like six or eight years in Santa Cruz and then and your parents were super like uh, supportive and, oh, and yeah. loved the fact that you were 
You, I mean, they were really down for yeah, you being they, an artist. <laughs> yeah, they were New Yorkers. My dad had been a painter and had taught at Columbia and NYU, and okay. and then they had completely decamped the system. So they didn't want their kids to be doctors or lawyers okay. at all. They, they cool. definitely were like, yeah, you should be you, whatever you want to be. Right. Go for it. And um, and then by the time I was 20, I was like, I need to go to L.A. or New York. Okay. And because Santa Cruz was like a small town. Sure. Um, and so I came to L.A. Why did you end up picking L.A.? A girlfriend of mine was going to art center. Okay. So it was a... You, it's you always know, a woman. It's always a woman. <laughs> right? That it's is the, the muse. Music. <laughs> That's the muse right there. You yes. follow the muse. And uh, yeah. I could drive here in six hours instead of New York, you know? Right. So I came to L.A. and... Um, did you ever think about moving to San Francisco? And Well, I did. I had a lot of friends in San Francisco. I had been up there playing a lot, like okay. at the Mabuhay Gardens and DNA and all those clubs south of Market and everything, which doesn't exist anymore because San Francisco's changed so much. But right. it didn't seem like a big enough city. It didn't seem like... I was like, I want to be in a band that makes records. Yeah. And San Francisco, there were no record companies in San Francisco. Right. Maybe 415. Um so I came to L.A., yeah. and I knew people here. I knew musicians. I had an aunt, my girlfriend. I One thing led to another. I started playing with different people. In fact, one of the very first bands I played in, the guitar player, was Jimmy Stafford. Jimmy <laughs> goes on to be one of the founding members of Train. Oh, funny. And, right, yeah. yes. And we're still friends to this day, but it was like... That was like 19-whatever year I moved here, I don't remember. Yeah. And he and I played in this weird like new wave pop band. It was uh-huh. really funny. Um, so one thing leads to another. And, you know, by a couple years later, Shiva Burlesque is born. Well, that so that was like, I read that was your first yeah. sort of big band or, or like your first, um, it, it wasn't even a big band. No, but. it was not a big band. It was a weird band as part of the LA scene. And the LA scene at the time was like hair metal bands and the yeah. Sunset Strip. And then there was like this weird East Hollywood, there was a club called Raji's that was okay. really great. And Shiva Burlesque was this weird psychedelic sort of Doors meets like Bowie meets Velvet Underground okay. um, band. And that's where I meet Grant from Grantley Buffalo. Right. He's not the singer, he's the guitar player. Okay. So Shiva Burlesque makes a, makes a record on a small little label in downtown LA. Okay. But that, but that record gets a lot of attention in England. Melody maker puts us on the cover, really raves about it. And we're like, wow, this is cool. Right. We make another record and then the band sort of changes shape and starts to disintegrate. And at that point is where Grantley Buffalo is born. Well, before, um, obviously I have a lot to ask about that. Yeah. How did, like, how did you and Grant like officially meet? Oh, we just met because they needed a drummer. And I knew someone and I showed up at rehearsal. Oh, I showed up at rehearsal and he was, um, he was electrocuting like a cockroach. (laughs) Okay. Or he wasn't electric. He was plugging his guitar pedal from the fuzz box, either into a potato or a cockroach. And it made a great, horrific sound. And I was like, this is cool. I like this guy. Yeah. So that was the beginning of a really good friendship of creative, you know, that would last many, many years and many records into Grantley Buffalo. Yeah. So. So, um. I know the first record that you guys made, the big the big hit, I guess you could say from the record, was called Fuzzy. Right. What, what year did that record come out approximately? Well, you know, that record was made in two parts. We had a friend, we had built it very much, everything in those days was very DIY, you know. Yeah. There were no, you, a band like that wasn't going to get signed to a major label because 
it, everything was indie. You know, we we were playing at Raji's with Perry's band, Psycom. Psycom was before Jane's Addiction. Okay. So that that was what was going on. There were a lot of other bands in LA that were just this under bubble. This is the late eighties, like okay. 88, 89, 90. By ninety, a friend of ours builds a studio in North Hollywood where we were all basically hubbing out of. Okay. And that's where we started recording Fuzzy. Got it. And we just kind of like got into this groove of how can things be as tiny and as like minimal as possible and serve the songs. And I was playing like literally kick snare hi-hat with brushes, yeah, you know, but it felt really big because there was all this space and Grant was playing his 12 string guitar and Paul was playing this weird bass detuned. You know, we were just experimenting and being like, totally not what was popular at all at the time right right um so we recorded that like a whole batch of songs there's 13 songs from that original session and we're playing at largo every week right and actually i was also drumming in cracker cracker is a band that david lowry had camper van beethoven had signed to virgin right and i knew david from santa cruz and then by 90, David's like, hey, I have a new band, Cracker. We have a new record coming out. Would you come on the road with us? We need right. a drummer. So I was like, yeah, I can do that. So I'm touring with Cracker and drumming in Grantley, Buffalo. And like I would fly back and we would play Sunday at Largo. Right. And then I'd jump on a plane or go back to Virginia and do like another couple of weeks of touring. Well, and I didn't know you at the time, but I remember seeing you guys, you like Grantley, Buffalo at Largo. Oh, yeah. Because my friend Jen that I met in Malibu, who ironically lives in Topanga now, right. um, introduced me to the band. Because she knew I was a singer and I was sort of like messing around with writing songs. She's like, you got to check these guys out. Check it out. Yeah. And, um, and, and as I think I said earlier mockingbird was sort of the first song that really and honey don't think um i guess it makes sense to play a song um should i play fuzzy or should i play like mockingbird what what do you think i should play you you can play whatever legally you think you can play (laughs) as long as as long as you get give me permission i guess i'll give you permission okay so um i think we'll play we'll play um we'll play mockingbird devastation at last Finally we meet After all of these years Out here on the street I had a feeling you would Make yourself known You came along just to claim Your place on the throne Now I've been overthrown Overthrown And I thought If I do The right lines With these mocking words Won't let me shine Devastation My door was left open wide
something this song was written this is on the mighty joe moon record which is the second grantley buffalo right. record. and we had this habit of we, we we were touring i have to give you a little more we were touring non-stop fuzzy had come out and michael stipe had said this is one of his favorite bands and wow. london records got a hold of that quote and put it on billboards in england and so all of a sudden grantley buffalo is like blowing up in england and we're on tv and mtv and all over how did michael stipe get a hold of the record or hear it or um i was good friends with a woman named rachel who lived in seattle she was good friends with peter buck and all wow. of the REM crew. And oh Rachel and I had been buddies for a long time. And you were really connected sort of in this secret little way. Somehow. And somehow I think she might have given Michael the record. Someone gives Michael the record. And he that's what he says. So, so now Grantley Buffalo is doing a lot of work over there. And we're really touring and touring. And then we come back here in the winter of 1993 or... I don't, maybe it was 92, and we make Mighty Joe Moon. We're like, okay. we need to make another record. Did you have a um, a label at this yeah, point? Yeah, we had signed to Slash Records. Okay. Which was, again, like from a creative standpoint, you know, since we're talking about creativity right. in the year 2018. <laughs> well, we're going to, we'll move to present day eventually, but eventually. I just find, I, but I find this so interesting. So Slash was a little tiny, you know, record label on on Martell and Beverly upstairs okay. in that Spanish kitchen building. Okay. Great historic building. Yes. Um, so they had bands like the Germs and X and the Violent Femmes. And we were like, this is a great label. So yes. we signed a deal with them for the for like the fuzzy record and you know, they gave us a little bit of money. So those home recordings that I was talking about that we had done, half of those became the fuzzy record and then we recorded another half of that record in San Francisco. Okay. Wow. At another really amazing creative place called Brilliant Studios, which was like this big, giant brick warehouse that had been like an anchor foundry. And it just like Paul, our producer, bass player, was like, we have to record here. This is crazy and magical. There's trees in here and skylights. And <laughs> we were like, okay, well, go to San, you know, we went to San Francisco yeah. and all lived upstairs with the mouses and the rats and, right. you know, made that record. Um, but, but the same thing, we go back there to make Mighty Joe Moon. We come back to LA to get a little break. Right. And we have the Northridge earthquake. Yes. 
and we wake up that morning. That's in like 94, 95. It's January of 94. There we go. Right? We wake up that morning and it's like everything is rumbling. I lived in the valley at the time. Okay. All the uh, car alarms are going off and all the electric things are arcing. So all you hear is like arcing and car alarms and dogs yes. and the grounds. It was totally cataclysmic. No, it was, it, you know, LA back then. Was a really fucked up place to be, I thought. I mean, and I'm from Ohio. Oh, yeah. And although... Well, you must have been scared out of that Exactly. Mind. You had the Rodney King... Um, oh, yeah. The earthquakes, the, the fires. The earthquakes, the fires. Yeah. And I lived in Malibu at the time. And I just... And, and it's funny. I talked about this two weeks ago with my podcast because the fires were going on. Oh, yeah. It, so it is surreal being here at Topanga. And it is bringing up that the, the fires in Malibu, yeah. the Rodney King... Um, the terrible earthquakes, the floods. I mean, that's and coming from Ohio. I lived in LA. This oh, is like I my know. third or fourth year out here. I was. It was kind of freaky. You were packing up and leaving. I. I well, I did, and then I ultimately came back. It is not the Instagram curated man bun twelve dollar blue bottle coffee, PC greens. You know, version of LA that it is now. Yeah, I mean, it, this city has. I'm so in love with this city now. Oh, I just like that no matter where I go, I can get a fresh pressed juice. Yes, we are so lucky out here. Rent a bike, jump on a bird scooter. Right. It's like a utopian universe. It's like Instagram. It is like LA has been completely curated by Instagram. Yes. It's perfect. But that's why I love it out here so much because I lived during the the doldrums and it was really a, a... I wasn't proud the to dark live here. Ages. It was. I mean, it, I I thought it was. Oh, you were right. Yeah. Well, and that's part of like the creative thing was like yes. it was kind of a horrid wasteland in some ways living here. And even though we came here as creative artists, um, you always kind of hated it. But then you loved it because there were clubs to play in. Yes. And there were record companies. It was an actual scene, though. Of, of there was a scene. A yeah, really great totally. scene of people making records. You know, and then. You would leave. I yes. mean, I would just leave. I don't, from 90, 90, 91, 92, 90, I mean, for literally a decade, I probably toured all the time. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. So, we've, we've chronologically, we're now in 1994 and yeah. the earthquake. Right. And, um, but that the death of Kurt Cobain was also that year. Yes, it was. And we, we were really connected to that as well because um, my brother worked with a photographer, Sam Bayer. Okay. And Sam did the first Nirvana video. And I remember my brother brought home this page treatment hmm. for this band Nirvana. And I'm reading the lyrics and like jalapeno. Right. And I was like, who is the, No one had heard that song yet. Yeah. And it was months before, you know, and they were shooting the video for it. And then the next day he's like, um, can we rent some drum stands from you for the video? Uh-huh. So I rented like these two pearl drum stands. And you know what the video's like, where the yes. kids just destroy Dave's drums. Yeah. So two days later, my brother brings the stands back to me, <laughs> and they're totally mangled and twisted. And he's like, here. I'm like, oh, thank you very much. I wow. still have them. So your drums were in that video. Not, I just rented the stand. But, the st- but still, that's crazy. I still have them. They were two pearl drum stands that I'd had from... Like a kid as 12. Wow. So they meant a lot to me, you know, and here I was 20 renting them to this video. But yeah. needless to say, so we were connected to that. And Well, anyway. No, but it's interesting because um, 
like there was an actual Instagram didn't exist. Cell phones just came out. And I talk about this a lot on my podcast where to get really good at something, you have to spend a lot of time. 10,000 I mean, hours. They say 10,000 hours. Yeah. Yeah. And so our free time now is so valuable because what people are doing instead of reading or getting really good at drums or becoming a great songwriter, mm-hmm. you know, they're using their free time to look at nonsense, you know, nonsensical things on Instagram. It's interesting. And that's why I think it's a bigger deal than we are letting on. Our free time now and getting really good at your craft mm-hmm. is is it's that time is getting taken away by useless stuff like Instagram. It's a great distraction. I mean, we are living the as they say, uh the fall of the Roman Empire with Wi-Fi. Hmm. You know, I mean, it is a great, amazing distraction. And why as humans are we prone to this? Why do we like this? Why do we go down those rabbit holes of looking at who's eating what and why she looks like that and where they're on vacation? I mean, it's enough that they just said they're going to Vietnam. Why do I need to see a photo of every day they're in Vietnam and then Cambodia? Their pictures are pretty. But nothing's wrong with it. I'm happy they're there. But... Then as a human nature, what is it about us as creatures? Well, I'm reading this book called Irresistible. I forget the author all of a sudden. But it, first chapter, it says Steve Jobs and Bill Gates didn't give their kids. Right. Don't. Technology, yeah. iPads. We are prone to be addicted to something. Um, the way that these programs are made, they are made by people that know exactly how to give you the dopamine rush to pay attention to the circles on Instagram. And right. we are just, we are programmed now to look at them and check in. And, and and again, it's not that we want, that I don't want people to not travel to Croatia and take photos, right. but you have to be so aware of how you're responding to things like our a cell phone or an Instagram account. And why is it so important? Because ultimately over time, we have a culture now of people that are, looking at that instead of getting better at making a movie. Is it any different from eating fast food? Or, I mean, there's a myriad Hmm. of distractions and things that are not necessarily the healthiest things for us to do. Um, Again, you know, the discipline of being a creative artist or creating something comes from within. I mean, if if you're not disciplined, I don't know that... Yeah, Instagram is a much easier form of distraction. You're right. But then again, social media is a great connector. Look at all the the positives to it. Look at the way news travels. Look at the yeah. way like the walls are broken down. Look at how tr- politicians are completely exposed for things. I mean, there's so much that has happened because things are traveling so quickly. So, you, I mean, obviously you have a more positive spin on it. Than, than I do, which I guess I would understand. I think my problem is, is that I promise we'll get back to the mid nineties, but, um, I just think this is important because back then you didn't have the distractions that you have now. Right. And so you could really focus and, and write music and tour. And, and I, I don't know, there was just, I think people are so insecure now though, of their lives perhaps. And, and not, so they're creating a fake world on Instagram. And although you're right that it's giving us more information, we don't know, we don't know what's true or false anymore. Well, that's really tricky. And it's also happens with art. Like they used to say, well, the, you know, the bar has been lowered and, and you know, that it's not as difficult to uh, 
create now because you can make a song on GarageBand or you can take a picture on the iPhone. Everyone's a photographer. Everyone's, and into some case that is true. You know, the photos that are taken with that camera on the phone are equal, if not surpass other photos. And you don't have to be a professional because you don't have to check the light or shut the shutter or you can open up GarageBand and pull a loop out and somebody other someone else's baseline and all of a sudden you've got a little thing happening yeah. and you know so does it make for more creativity and are we just living in this like glut of like everyone's creating and doing all this stuff and none of it has like any barometer of is it good or is it bad and who's even to say if it's good or bad yeah you know what i mean because when we made a thing like that was the thing you know you would strive and make a record we couldn't make a record on our own back then no we couldn't get it out on our own we had to be part of the machine we had to sign a record deal because how else would you get the record pressed or delivered around the world or on the radio or in the store there were things called record stores kids where they (laughs) sold records you know what i mean not just whole foods or um urban outfitters you tower know? records on sunset boulevard oh i would go to at midnight oh because God. like van halen or pearl jam had a new record and i would actually go there at midnight Fuck. to get it yes i know i drive by that building whenever i drive by that building i just get like nostalgic and sad and like questioning what's going on and you know what i mean i want to go back to that sort of washed out technicolor polaroid that i have of it where it's packed and yeah joan jets on the roof playing you know what i mean yes um but all of that, yeah, in a way, I think I think without so much of this distraction, you were definitely forced to come up with your own entertainment. You were hmm. forced to do it yourself. And I think that's what we all did in that scene in the 90s. Like I was talking about Largo and remembering Largo in the mid-90s. And Largo was this club on Fairfax for people that are listening where correct. some amazing artists went through there and played. Yeah. Um, and it was a little theater of like 200 people at the most, probably even 100. Yeah, no, it was run by a guy named Mark Flanagan. That's right, yes. And it was a small little bar with a tiny stage about six feet inches off the ground. And it was just a very safe and insular place where you could feel like it was your living room. Yes. And at that time, it was like John Bryan was there and Elliot and, Smith. Yeah, and, and, and Angela and Paul from the Wild Colonials. Paul Cantalone yes. is an amazing composer. She's a great singer. Ben Harper was there playing. He got signed out of there. Elliot Smith was there. John Bryan. So we all just were like hanging out. And it was a very creative, like everyone would play with everybody else and right. come sit in. Or somebody like Colin Hayes on tour and in from Australia. He right. wants, has a night off. Come to a show. Colin Hay was from Men at Work, the lead singer. That's right. I mean, that was his huge band. Yeah. And so it was an amazing, creative, sort of like your coffee house environment, but with liquor. So that helped. And a piano and a drum set. And Flanagan just was an amazing guy. And he, yeah. he knew how to create a you know a creative womb-like environment that you could stay till two in the morning right. and play. And um, well, the- I found it interesting in the late '90s, maybe even early 2000s. You know, Pearl Jam and Nirvana. Well, not Nirvana anymore because he um, passed away. But I mean, even Stone Temple Pilots. There were all these really. Um, Seattle grunge type bands going on right and there you guys were sort of 
creating, how did you, and I think you guys even opened for Pearl Jam. We did, yeah. We did a tour with them. What was what was that like? Well, it's funny because on paper you would think, oh, that doesn't really go together too well. But again, we, we had become the sort of favorites of a lot of bands mm-hmm. and they asked us to tour with them. So in 93, 94, 95, 96, we toured with Pearl Jam, Smashing Pumpkins, the Cranberries, wow. R.E.M., World Party, Bob Mould's band Sugar. So we just like, and that was great because our record company was like, yeah, here, go out and tour. It's a good way to promote. Um, on well, record, on our record, our uh, on record, we were a lot more like ethereal and a lot more dreamy mm-hmm. and a lot more like music that your girlfriend would use to get you in bed. Yeah. Um, but on stage, we were really much more of a punk rock band. Yes. We were a really ferocious trio with Paul stomping on his distorted bass and I was just slamming on yeah. big tom-toms. And it was it was pretty much of a big sound. Um, yeah. So we definitely held our own with those bands. Cool. Um, like, give me a, what was one of your best memories, uh, and like um, opening for Pearl Jam or, or REM? I mean, do you, is there a specific show that just really stands out? Well, interestingly enough, in 96... Um, REM invites us to tour with them, um, a world tour. Okay. And we start in Perth, Australia. So that's like on the other side of the world from right, Los Angeles. Right. So we gear up for that. You know, we, we, we rehearse and we pack as many clothes as we possibly need because we're going from Australia to Japan to Europe, you know. And we start in Perth. And um, the tour takes us, like I said, through Asia and back into Europe. And we are in Luzon. Switzerland, mm-hmm. and Bill Berry walks off stage in the middle of the show because he had a brain aneurysm. I remember this, and, yes. And I'm backstage, like, hanging out, doing something. And Bill Berry is an R.E.M. Bill Berry is the drummer the drummer, of right, yes. And <clears throat> the band comes off stage, and someone comes to find me and says, Bill's wow. had an aneurysm, uh, he's going to the hospital. And Peter Buck's like, um, we need you to fill in for the rest of the show. Wow. And I'm like, oh. That's a surprise. <laughs> right. I and mean, obviously you know the songs a little, but not well yeah, enough to well, be the drummer. It's different to like watch the show every night for three. We were like two months into the tour, three months into the tour. Right. It's different to watch as a fan, you know, yeah, which I did. And then sure. another to go, oh, God, I need to know those drum <laughs> yes, parts. We, exactly. Yeah. So literally we had a powwow for about five minutes backstage, looked at the set list. They were oh like, we only God. have about eight songs left, you know, and and... By the way, this isn't like a club. We're playing 10,000-seat arenas right. every night. REM is huge, huge. then. Yeah, that was on I the, think monster, the Monster, the yes. monster Tour. Gosh, so I like that record At that lot. point, there was really nothing else you can do. I mean, you're, you know, and I was just like, let's go. Let's do it. Yes. You know, and, and I just was like, we got to wing it. You know, and I'm, we played um, It's the End of the World as I Know It. Right. We played... I can't remember what else. Maybe but it was the Frequency like, Kenneth or something. Or maybe that was earlier in the it, show, probably. No, that might have been that. Uh, we might have played uh, This One Goes Out to the One I Love. Oh, uh, yeah. That song's great. Sure. But it was one of those surreal moments where all of a sudden you walk up and like the lights go up and I'm like, holy hell. Yes. And Peter turns around and looks at me and counts the song off. Well, did they ever... like? It was crazy. Did they think that he was? Did they think about just canceling the show at any point? No, no one really knew. They thought he was just um, 
they didn't know what was going on. Okay. You don't really, you can't really cancel the middle of the show. Yeah. I mean, that was the best solution was like, let's just finish it. And we right. did, you know, wow. and in that, and in that place and in that moment, you know, as a drummer, all those years of playing and sitting in, whether it was touring with, you know, Grantley Buffalo or Cracker or playing with Charlie Musselwhite or playing whatever, you just go, all right, boom, you yes. know, and go for it and do yeah. it. And we got through it. And wow. the next day, you know, everyone was like, what's going on? And the tour did come to an end. I think I remember and that. And everyone flew home. Um, he was subsequently recovered just fine. And we resumed touring about three months later in America. So... Wow. But, um, yeah, that was the mid-90s, which, you know, brings us all the way. More touring happened in the 90s for Grantley Buffalo. And then by 2000, that was sort of the end of that chapter. And I begin the second part of my creative renaissance, revolution. Yeah. Period. My creative period. Well, I want to, before we get to that... Two more things with about any um, just because I was a huge Pearl Jam fan. Oh yeah. Any what was what was that like? That was really great. Those guys were um, we we were in the Midwest with them, like around Detroit and that whole area, okay. Chicago, and you know I don't really remember that much of it. Eddie was super cool. All the yeah. guys were great. Okay. Um, I really liked the bass player. He was sort of the yeah, most... Yeah, I think his name's Stone, or maybe um, Jeff Ammons. Jeff is yeah, the bass player. Jeff, there we go. And I was a big Pearl Jam fan. Anyway, <laughs> Me too. Because it was like... And I still am now. I hear those yes. songs, and I'm like, wow. I saw was... them a few years ago, and, and they still sound amazing. Yeah, yeah, they were just... I mean, you know, they were just great. And they were amazing live. Eddie would climb up things and just yeah. sing his heart out. and They just were a cool band. Um yeah. Well, I want to play one more song and talk about one more record okay. for Grantley Buffalo. And then I definitely want to talk about the transition because mm-hmm. I think it's an inch as you get older. We'll, we'll talk about this in a sec. Um, Jubilee was the last Grantley Buffalo record. Right. And it's funny. It feels like um, the drums are bigger on that record. Louder. It, yes. It sounds like a more polished album. Um, it, it just, was. yes. I mean, yeah. it, it felt like it sounded like a more expensive record just because just compared to the previous records. Right. Um, and I love the last song, which I want to play a shallow end. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's okay that I play that song. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, definitely. So what? I'll play it now.
the making of that record, it was a different record. Okay, yeah, talk to me about that album a little bit, just because I, I really, that again, that, that record, again, at the time, lots of grunge music coming out. And then here's Grant with this beautiful sounding voice. And I was a drummer too. And oh. I, so I really responded. It had everything that I wanted. It had great lyrics, a great sounding voice, but it also had big sounding drums. Big sounding drums. So yeah. for me as a singer and a drummer, I loved it. Oh, cool. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a record that was like, we needed to make a shift. Um, we needed to make a different record that wasn't a slow, re- you know, drenched in reverb kind of record. Yeah. We couldn't repeat that. It was now 1995, 96, um, something like that. And I guess it was six. So we, we made the record in L.A. with uh, producer Paul Fox. And we worked at A&M Studios. And... It was a different experience. We kind of rehearsed everything and played it much more. All those songs worked live, like yeah. that bass, drums, guitar. And we tracked it like that. Like, really, you know, I had all kinds of so much crazy stuff set up at A&M, like drums and percussion and just, you know, we had all sorts of things, Optigons and Celestes. Yeah. And like, no, it was a beautiful sounding record. Yeah, and we we did that and... Um, we use a great bass player, Dan Rothschild, who's the son of Paul Rothschild, producer of The Doors. Okay. Amazing producer. Dan is a great bass player and right. producer now. Um, very creative. Very creative and just a really good energy. We had a, a really good time tracking that record for a couple of weeks. And um, and truly, truly was, was on that record, right? Yep, and that yeah. was sort of the big hit. Yeah, it was sort of like the record company wanted the band you know, really wanted the band to be successful. Yeah. They really thought that this was a record that could, you know, go further on radio. And it did. It went into the top 10, maybe top 11, something like that here. Um, But also things were changing in the world by then, too. And, And in a way, I don't know, something that was a great record just from a creative point. I don't know that it was received the way... People thought it would be worldwide. Yeah. We did spend pretty much a year touring on it. Okay. Um, And then, um, you know, and and the record was sort of interesting. The first version of the record is just raw, like bass, drums, guitars, and vocals. Okay. And really stripped down and and ferocious. And I really liked that version of it. Yeah. And then we went back a couple of months later and continued overdubs. Oh, interesting. And um, E from the Eels comes and sings (laughs) on it. And John Bryan comes in. And um, there's a lot of guest artists on it. Right. And so it sort of like... It smoothed out some of the rough edges and it tamed it a little bit. And I, I often wish... Had we been living... Now making that record, you'd have all the versions of it online. Yeah, you'd have of course. The, the original first month record, the rough mixes, you know, and then you'd have the finished record. But right. that didn't happen back then. Was, yeah. We were still making records. CDs, I guess. Yeah. But um overall that was a great creative process. You know, again, we were all working pretty well together. The producer was great. Yeah. Paul Fox had done some amazing records with the Sugar Cubes and the Wallflowers and um yeah. And it was just a time, you know, and but by the literally by I think then we toured all the way, maybe it was two years of touring. Yeah. Till, I feel like okay, till ninety nine. Yeah. I think by the end of ninety nine, two thousand was kind of the end of Grantly Buffalo. Well, that time something came up at that time. And I don't know if it 
correlates because I'm curious about you know the transition of leaving the band and then or the band ultimately stopping. So I think nowadays Instagram is creating you know the podcast is called the downward facing spiritual spiral and I yeah. do think Instagram is is creating this downward spiral of our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, people are paying attention to things that just really aren't important and um, well also. If you're looking at something that makes you feel bad because you're not there, yes, that's not a good thing, ultimately. No. Whether it's Instagram or, you know, something else yeah. that makes you feel bad. You don't want to put your attention on that. You will only get more bad feeling stuff right. if you put your attention there. Yes. So when it works that way, it's not a good thing. No. So something really huge happened and I don't have the year exactly but it affected the music industry forever and it was Napster oh boy so what approximately I, I don't I don't want to turn my phone on because obviously right. but I'm guessing it was around that time when Grant, I think so yeah it must be the end of the 90s right when this it's happened the, it's the end of the world <laughs> well it really was because yes you know if you think about um and I just was saying this to someone else because I was remarking that books are actually kind of you know, making a comeback. Did you say books? Books. Yes. Bookstores. What are those? Yeah. Well, for those younger (laughs) folks that are listening to this podcast, it's a thing that has a lot of printed words in it, all bound together by ropes and staples and nails and screws and hot glue guns. Yes. Um, So the, yes, the record industry was basically decimated. Um, by this technology which allowed file sharing and all of a sudden the thing that for god knows how many years 80 years i mean the record companies they made so much money for so long it was crazy it was like the federal reserve or something (laughs) printing money the way they printed cds they would print cds charge you the consumer twenty dollars yeah. Pay a couple of dollars to make the thing. Pay the band a dollar. A dollar. But but don't forget they would recoup all their costs out of that dollar. Yeah. And then they would basically make the other fifteen dollars, right? Or ten, let's just say they make ten dollars a day. <laughs> right. And they're selling millions and millions of them. No wonder they were on yachts taking <laughs> vacations. Yes. You know what I mean? So that glorious, glorious industry of the record business that had gone on. Really, I mean, for decades, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, decades, you know, in the heyday of it, the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, all of a sudden just is exploded. Yeah. And the the industry itself doesn't really even know what's happening. They're like, should we make some kind of way to prevent this? And by that time, it was over. It was done. Yeah, we've never seen, and it's still fairly... Like when you think about it, if I was still trying to be a recording artist and make records this day and age, I don't think that I would have any faith in the system. I don't know how bands are actually making money, these younger bands. The only ones that are making money are the ones that are touring. And and I because you so for people that know Spotify nowadays and, and like the iTunes store, Napster was the one that came out first that allowed people to download music get music for free file share file basically it it allowed you to take your cd and rip it and convert it to mp3s which is basically just a tiny 
downgraded, horrible version right. of the audio file, but yes. it makes it so small. So you get this really crushed down small audio file and the advent of the internet speed, yes. right? All these things are happening at the same time. So all of a sudden you have on your hard drive right at home mm-hmm. songs, but I can access it. Yes. So all of a sudden anyone could access your songs, your Grantly Buffalo songs. Yes. So now... You know, Tommy and Janie, they don't even have to buy the record. Right. They can just download for free. So this, I mean, this had a huge impact. Devastating effect. It, it did. And, and while I do think record companies were taking advantage of artists. Oh, sure. Yeah. People don't realize to get your record heard, to tour. I mean, all of these things are freaking expensive. And oh, yeah. an artist who's living in Eagle Rock, writing music, can't afford to realistically get people to know about them or buy their music without that machine. The machine and the way it all worked is was invaluable. Totally. It was set up. And also keep in mind that without computers or cell phones, people were only getting music a couple of ways. Yes. You heard the song on the radio <laughs> when it was played and then you could only go buy the record on tuesday when it was released yes records were only released on tuesdays right you know and you sometimes would have to line up at a store if it was the new pearl gem record that's what i did or the new grantley buffalo record yes it was a shorter line for grantley (laughs) buffalo than pearl gem but still two people in line yes but But, there was a system in place that seemed to Obviously favor the record label executives, but it also gave artists the opportunity to do these things like write, record albums, tour that we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. Art, art and artists have always needed patrons and venues. Right. You can create all day long in your bathroom, garage or workshop, but no one will hear it, see it, feel it or be moved by it. Unless it gets out there. Right. I mean, we can go back to the Renaissance. We can go back to the Medici family in Florence. Right. The supporters of artists. But this is why, and this is sort of a transition mm-hmm. to present day. Yes. Let me try to make sense of this and why I think Instagram and our culture is worse than we think. Back then, the talented people who actually were really good at their craft were the ones that got signed that got their movies made, that got the records made. Now, because of the record labels not existing like they used to be, or like they used to, I can go home and record a song. We could record a song right now. In like two, three weeks, it would be up on Spotify. But I'm not going to make any money because I don't have a huge million-person following on Instagram. So what people are doing is they're... Creating an image, a persona, standing out, being, you know, swearing or showing off their boobs or being really mm-hmm. to get attention. Right. And get all those followers and then maybe put something together that's just okay. Mm-hmm. Write a song that's kind of mediocre. Right. But then they're going to sell because they got a ton of followers on Instagram just by being crazy or obnoxious. And and so that's why I think the quality of art now mm-hmm. has gone down. It's not as good as it used to be. 
and I've, obviously I don't have proof of this, but right. I never thought Cardi B was particularly very, I don't think she's particularly very good. Ironically, she finally put out a song a few weeks ago that I actually thought was good. But who's this? Cardi, do you know Cardi? Oh, so you're kidding with me. So, um, yeah. I, but I think she represents that shift where people are more concerned with their image than actually the craft of being a good artist. Well, okay, so so go back to the record company and the A&R man and the man who would go see a little band at Raji's or, you know, whatever club in L.A. and be like, these guys have something yes. and come back and see them again next week and see if they still could do that or was that just a one-off that they played and then be like, I like this band. They have some good songs. And then he signs them and he works with them and then he gets a producer who's also a creative artist right. and he gets that guy to come in and maybe work on the songs. You know, the craft of songwriting is a craft. There's, it is. Those songs in the 60s are iconic hits for a reason because they're great songs. Right. You know what I mean? And they're still great songs today. And so that guy who's the producer is now creatively working with the band and the A&R is creatively working. It was a team of creative people that for better or for worse did their job, showed up every day, put thought into it. They weren't always right. And sometimes they weren't flops, yeah. you know, or sometimes they picked the wrong song to be the single. Sometimes they picked the wrong band. Right. But needless to say, there was a nurturing <clears throat> creative environment that the artists were working in. And all of a sudden, as a band, it wasn't just you and the 25 people coming to see you at the whiskey. You had now thousands of people. And then you created an image with a video director. And you right. brought in a filmmaker and a photographer and a stylist. So all these creative people worked to create something which became a thing and an image and the sound. And people responded to that. Yeah. Um, and in a way, you did have these kind of gatekeepers of good taste. The yes. A&R man knew that whether that band that he saw were just phonies or he, and he, unless it was a phony A&R man. And then right. he signed a really terribly great sugar pot band. Like, and then all of a sudden they're huge. And yeah. we're all scratching our heads going, why do they like that song? But maybe at the d end of the day, people want to see those girls dressed up dancing, singing this silly song. Right. So, and there is room for that. There's room for Neil Young making his record and Pearl Jam making their record and the Spice Girls making their record or Cardi B, you know what I mean? Yeah. But there were, there was less product, there was less material. It was a streamlined delivery system. You knew where to get it. And the value of music had just that it had value placed on it i yes. didn't just download the song that i heard walking into the shoe store and all of a sudden five seconds later it's on my phone for free right. that just completely annihilates the system of whether i think i even want it or not well and it it, it downgrades the the whole experience of making music i mean there was sort of this it was it's this intimate, unique experience of writing songs, finding people you can collaborate with, right. connecting. Yeah, it's a long, painful but beautiful process sometimes of of, of touring and recording and and Napster, Spotify, Instagram. It's it's completely thrown it all away. <laughs> 
<laughs> we better um, shift gears. <laughs> then we're going to sound like a bunch of old curmudgeons. Well, okay, you know, let's pretend we're teenagers, Eddie. Let's pretend. No, but this we is have... the. But this is it's. I. I. You know. Of course, I struggle with with wondering if I'm being too negative. Oh, you can never be too negative. What's the name of the podcast? <laughs> the Tower Facing Spiritual Spiral. Spiral. Yeah, well, you know, and I, a friend of mine was getting upset with me because he listens to my podcast. He's really supportive. And he, he's like, Eddie, you're too negative. And then I have other friends who are, are like, you're telling it like it is. It's true. And, and it's... And it, is the world better in the 90s? Was the world better in the 90s than it is now? I mean, of course, we already talked about earlier, oh. where LA is, I think, so much better now. Yeah. And, and, but there, that the artists, though, and the talent and, and the best things rising to the top, mm-hmm. it's just different now. I think that, um, again, with technology, there's always going to be the love hate. Is it destroying the world? How do I find a balance? How does it work for me? Or is it something of the younger generation? Is it going to come out and the younger generation use it and surprise us in a way? Or is it just going to become something that, uh, you know, levels the playing field so that no one knows the difference between good or bad? And even saying that is kind of a statement like who am I to say what's good or bad who am I to say that the kid who does the song on GarageBand puts it on Spotify and a day later it's being listened to by all these kids is that good or bad I mean case in point this is an interesting story last two years ago two years ago around this time I heard a song um, by well I have to go back a few more years. There was a young band called the Slightlies, mm-hmm. L.A. band of teenagers. And it's led by a, a great, really creative guy named Phineas. Okay. And I know Phineas through a writing partner of mine. And, and she and I had created a television show around indie bands and music. And we were working with these guys. And Phineas was part of that in his band. And then, like Christmas time... Out comes this song he does with his sister called Ocean Eyes. Okay. And his sister's Billy Ellish. And this song kind of like, it's this weird little song they did in their bedroom. They put the stems up on SoundCloud. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, DJs are remixing it. Um, I send Chris to read us a KCRW sure. email. I'm like, Chris, have you heard this song? He's like, yeah, someone just played it for me. And, um, and then KCRW starts playing it. And... The song just blows up and blows up and goes bigger and bigger and bigger. And look at her now on Instagram or Facebook and check on the web. The kid, she's like 16 years old and it's been nonstop. Yeah. Two years. I mean, I just was reading and texting with her mom. So I'm friends with her mom. Yeah. You know, and they're like on the road. She met. Elton John. Hmm. She's like helping kids that have like survivor cancer patients are coming up to her and like saying, I love you. You know, it's like, so it's a really weird mixed bag. And she's jumping around in her sort of hip hop gear and jumping with her big crazy tennis shoes. And I don't really understand it. I don't even know what it is, but I love her and she's awesome. And my girls saw her in Milan a few months ago and they all connected and loved her and so that's kind of a phenomenon in a way it's like it's a cultural thing i don't even i couldn't 
sing you the song. Right. And even when I heard the original song, I said to Chris, I was like, I don't even know if it's done. Like, does it sound like, I almost said something like, I think she should write a bridge. Right. <laughs> and it's like, I'm the only one, the rest of the like 20 million people that love her, they don't care if she wrote a bridge right. to the song. But So that's like a subjective viewpoint of generations that are totally different, you know. And there she is as an artist really taking advantage of that medium and connecting with people. Yeah. And so that's a plus. That's an upside. I want to talk about a few things in the transition. Because of what's happening now also, we, we don't know... Um, we don't know... And everybody thinks their opinion makes... Everybody has an opinion, which is really great. Um, but, but, like, I... This is really interesting. The new iPhone came out, and I read this review on Engadget about how the camera is better and this is better. Mm-hmm. And and one of my friends, she didn't want to buy the new iPhone because her friend told her that there's nothing different about the new phone other than one pixel in the camera. And so she ultimately didn't get it. Mm-hmm. But she is placing more value on her friend's opinion, which ultimately got her to not buy the phone, than actually reading the article by a professional writer in in Engadget who actually examined and, and researched the phone, right, and and wrote that article for Engadget. And so that's but that's so no like it is an open wide open <laughs> field on what makes something good or bad now. Yeah, I know, and that's frustrating. That's just. It's ridiculous. Well, yeah, it's in, but that's again. So clearly, I'm more negative than you are about Instagram <laughs> and our culture. But all of this stuff is frustrating because the person who actually is really good at something, the soft-spoken one, the introvert, right? They're getting looked over because they're not feeling really confident or comfortable to figure out how to market themselves on Instagram or Twitter. But that's kind of what's shifted now. Maybe the, the artist has to be good at everything. Well, yeah. I mean, that did occur as we got into this digital world. And as an artist, yeah, you're like, well, there's no more record companies. You can do everything. And it's like, well, wait a minute. It's hard enough to do one thing, like write a really yes. good song and then make a really good record. And then now you also have to like make press the record and design the record and pick out your sweater and you actually have to take your own photo and write your own bio yes. and it's like you're technically you're actually not good at all those things let me just tell you that's yes. why other people had jobs hire a writer she's a much better writer at writing a bio than you're ever going to be yes. you know and it's like and and so you're right there there it has leveled the playing field like we don't want to take the time to read that book or research this thing. We just rather have, hey, Betty, do you like the phone or not? No, I don't like it. Okay, well, I won't buy it. You know what I mean? It's sort of like it is all the information is disseminated. And so no one, there's no way to place value on Mm. a stream that actually has that value. It's the same thing as getting the song for free. Yes. You know what I mean? But why have books still hold value. You know, museums aren't free. Books aren't free. Why should a song be free? 
Why? I mean, I do. I hate Spotify. I don't use Spotify. Yeah. I don't have any playlists. I'm not curating anything. If you want to, like, but how did how did I mean? Let me ask you. How did that? How did it pass? Like, how did Napster get away with it? I mean, that's the thing. Well, there wasn't any getting away with it. It was like the technology was. Right. I mean, it's just like it's out of the bag. But there was nothing that record labels could ultimately do. It's like splitting the atom once you get it. I mean, it was the end of the world as we know it. Right. And I mean, it kind of was. Um, You couldn't stop it. Right. Maybe at one point, but they couldn't stop the technology. Yeah. You know, and now they're just trying to do the best. And like, are artists getting paid if you buy a song on iTunes? I don't even like listening on iTunes. I mean, I use it, but I don't buy music that way. Well, and it's funny. I want to tell this quick story about Coldplay, and then we're going to connect it to how... Because artists now have to figure Mm -hmm. out how to navigate this world. Right. So I... Coldplay... I love the first two records of Coldplay. Picking up Parachutes, uh, Rush of Gold, um, Blood to the Head. I forget technically what it's called. A Rush of Blood to the Head or Uh something like that. So the Coldplay documentary, which I highly recommend... Okay. I saw it at the Arclight in Santa Monica, and now it's on Amazon. But it's this amazing documentary showing the progress of how they met, Mm. and then now they're selling out the Rolls Bowl. Like, I mean, I don't love their last few records. Um, I don't like where the direction of the band has gone. But when when I walked out of that film, I thought to myself... That's that's never going to happen again. I I don't think like a band is going to come out in the last few years and sustain and create a following right. and put out like five, six, seven albums like yeah. U2, Pearl Jam. Right. I just now it's like Drake and Beyonce. It's it's very singular. It feels very right. I'm myself, and and the idea of meeting three four guys and putting a band together and then experiencing yeah. that. Pro- I just I don't think that's ever going to happen again. Well, I hope it does. I really do because to me that's like. like I, do you see why I'm saying that though, or like feel that way? I don't, yeah, maybe. I mean, I think there's. I mean, again, to go back to like what's happening with young people. There are a lot of young people being creative totally. and having bands and starting bands and playing live. So it's like I have to always reconnect with that and like try to find out what's happening. Who's who's where's the scene? You know what I mean? But I mean where is I just don't think there is a scene anymore. I don't know. I mean, I think there must be some bands in L.A., right? It's a big city. Don't they play at the Echo or the Echoplex or the Bootleg Theater? I just sadly, know? I mean, I love that your positivity. But I, I, but I am totally, thinking about totally delusional. I'm thinking though about like the grunge scene. Like to me, that is the last actual scene, yeah. and I think there is a scene of this reggaeton music, which with yeah. J Balvin and. But you're right. Like that scene of of all those bands in Seattle, you know, helping each other and oh, and, yeah. and selling out venues. I just I don't think that scene. I don't think that'll ever happen again. Well, it was funny because I remember Grantley Buffalo. We were playing a show at the Paradise in Boston, and it was a radio show for like a radio station. Mm-hmm. And Radiohead was playing at the club next door. <laughs> wow! And they walked in to look at us while we were sound checking. <laughs> and I didn't know who they were at the time. I had heard of them yes. and I didn't get to see them that night. 
Uh, unfortunately, we <laughs> you're like, playing. guys, I'm going to not do our show because yeah. I want to check out yeah. Radiohead next door. But I kind of like, I, I remember, and now Radiohead's like one of my favorite bands. Sure. You know? And th- talking about Coldplay coming to such great success, they were a few years after us. And I often thought, had we been able to just slide our whole existence forward by about five years, yeah. we probably would have hit the marketplace at a time when grunge was sort of had wound down, yes. there was that little pocket that Coldplay, like people responded to the melody and people wanted a song again in a way. And that was and, Grantly Buffalo, yeah. And we, if we had been able to be popular from like 96 to 2005, we right. would have had a better decade. Yeah. So anyway, but again, you know, it's all about timing. And I think that I try to just focus that how do you use these tools? Hmm. And is Instagram at the end of the day really such a big deal? Is it any different than sending a postcard home from when you went abroad on the steamship? Yeah. Is it any different? You know, it's compounded a thousand percent and you're getting a million postcards a day yeah. from people all over the world. And yes, we do have the ability to like go down that rabbit hole, but that's our own fault. That's not the fault of the app when you're at the end of the day. I just feel like they're manipulate, like those creators. And you're, (laughs) although you're right, we ultimately make our own decisions. I think it started out as just a simple photo sharing Mm -hmm. device with like your friends, but they keep adding things and turning it into a, a product that you, can't control yourself and and then ultimately people are taking advantage because oh. then they want everything to look good they mm-hmm. only they, and then now people are everybody's selling something now oh yeah now you can sell your photo presets <laughs> that makes your instagram look that way seriously yes the oh reason like God. so people that are using like so you go on one of those food blogs or travel blogs and you notice how every photo yeah. okay so they're using adobe lightroom and they're using a set of presets, but now you can save those presets and sell them. So if you start a new oh travel or yoga blog or food blog, but you want it to look like so-and-so's that already has a million followers, you want that white washed out look, or you want it really saturated, just download those presets from Adobe Lightroom. And you, Eddie, can look as fabulous <laughs> as you ever wanted to be. <laughs> but, okay. Aren't you glad I told you this? Well, I do want to talk about your transition yes. from Grant, but you're bringing up a point that we have to talk about. You know that I make fun of our culture constantly on Instagram with my sarcastic quotes. I mean, does this does does it bother you that I do that, or do you think that? Oh, it, not at all. Okay, because some great. people really get offended by it. Um, and and this, those I people can, need to get a clue as to life. <laughs> okay, but you clearly you're more positive about this whole thing that's happening with Instagram than I am. Um, but it's insane. Your story that you're just telling right now, it, it's just, we talk about value. The well, things that we value now are so demented compared to what people used to value. And although LA is so much better than it used to be 25 years ago, I don't know about our priorities. And it's just... It, well, okay, but how is the, again, I'm being 
I'm being the other. I'm, I hope through my podcast, Eddie, to change and hope to enlighten you. Well, I do feel slightly like my, no. my vision is a little bit no. more open now, and that's good. Okay, so the Instagram for that person is a storefront. How is the Photoshop um, presets any different than whitewashing the front of their store? No different. You're right. It's the same thing. Um, I'm not really using it personally in my work. Like, I don't feel the need that I have to upload stuff about music or releases all the time. Occasionally I do. And, you know, I don't have that many people that follow me. I don't follow that many people. Wait, I'm but, only friends with people that have over 2,000 followers. Do you, you don't have that many? <laughs> Oh, oh you, the interview's do you need over. To leave now? Yeah, the interview's over. Thank God, thank God. <laughs> I judge people so, based on how many followers they you're have. You're so bumming me up. Um, <laughs> I'm leaving. Interview's over. <laughs> interview's over. Thank goodness. So, but, so how do you? So you really so, don't use Instagram? Or? No, I mean I like it. It's highly entertaining, but I don't. I don't have the type of business that I feel like I need to constantly be promoting. Right. But other people do. Yeah. So they're using it that way. Uh, photographers are using it. In fact. Here's a great example. Brands like Adidas or maybe it's Apple or Nike, brands will look at photographers and hire them based on how many follow the young photographers. Right. And even models, they are now hiring them based on their Instagram following. So the model that wants to get work for the Adidas shoot or, you know, promoting a brand, she has to have over 25,000 followers. Do you and think that's a good thing? I don't personally think it's a good thing, you know, because I think she should be able to get the work regardless of that. Right. You know, and he is a photographer. But, you know, if you're hiring a photographer because you want a certain look, then you want to look at their work, you know. Yeah. And, and Instagram is serving as an example of his work. Whether I think that's a great example, it doesn't even matter. Because no. I, it's not me making the judgment call. Um, in terms of music, I think if I was a young artist and making a record, I would probably be using it as a tool to connect. I would want people yes. to hear my song. I would want people to like check it out or I'm going on tour. I need to promote. I need to get bodies in the door. I need to like yeah, connect with to. other artists. You know, I would want someone to remix the song. I would want you as a yoga teacher to like play it and talk about it. Yes. And, you know what I mean? So it does create this like spider web of interconnectivity. Well, I've said it before. If, if you're an artist, a yoga teacher, a creator, a writer in a band, I mean, you have to use it. It's, it's, it, it's makes sense. I just think people, because of it and the onslaught of information and the onslaught of photos, it's creating more confusion. And there's, there's so much doubt now in, in what's good, what's not. Everything that we've talked about and the shift in the recording industry, right? the shift in our culture with Instagram and what's good, what's not, and where we place value. So ultimately, in the late 90s, early 2000s, Grantly Buffalo started to, it, it, it ended. Yeah, it dissolved. It was it, no longer relevant. So what did, because of the landscape, even, mm-hmm. even, and we can compare present day with then, because what was happening was Napster was happening and affected bands, and bands were losing deals, and labels were falling apart. So, well, let's, what do you do to then do you, what did you do as an artist, as a drummer? Did what, what, 
make, brought your feet back to ground where you knew the band wasn't happening anymore. Labels were starting to fall apart. So what did, did you make a conscious choice and what you were going to do next to stay creative and, and still make a living? Yeah, I mean, you have to look at, there's a plus side too with the advent of digital technology. So as this new technology comes into being, we get faster computers, we get software programs that allow studios, you know, recording studios used to only exist as this thing that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it had to be in a special place and it had to be run by someone who understood it. And so what happens for me is as the band comes to an end in 2000, I start looking around at what I want to do. And uh, I don't want to just be a drummer for hire and go out on the road with someone else's band. I'd come off my own successful band. And I was like, I start producing artists. I hook up with a woman songwriter, composer. The two of us start working together. Um, that leads into writing music for commercials and trailers and TV. And sorry to interrupt. So was because that's a big thing now. But in, yeah, did, you, did you meet her or did you guys like start working together because you thought you'd make a record or was it the yeah. conscious choice that maybe we thought you know let's this there's this world of trailers and commercials taking off. Let's no, do it was that. very organic. Okay. Um, she was a is a great singer and had a band and asked me to join her band. Okay. So I joined her band very organically as the drummer. We are playing some shows that leads into, you know what I say, you know, uh, I'd like to produce an EP for you. Mm -hmm. So, and I put together a studio at my house now and I'm able to put together a digital music studio, which means it doesn't cost $250,000. Right. And I have the studio set up. And so I start producing her and we do this EP, and then all of a sudden, you know, we're working, and she knew someone in in the commercial world who okay. had a very successful <clears throat> commercial company. We start writing some music for him. I know someone at a trailer company in Hollywood. He says, hey, we need a song for this trailer. You know, could you do a song? We're like, okay. So we write a song for that. And one thing leads to another, and, you know, People, I knew all kinds of great musicians that weren't playing in bands, so I would bring people together. I was able to, like, use my drumming. I could drum, I could produce, I could engineer. I was doing all these different things, which was really fun and really creative. Totally. And um, every day, every week was a different thing. It was like, I remember in 2006, every day I wrote a commercial demo. With, you know, some of them had to have vocals. I would bring in a singer and it was like a factory. It was like 9 a.m. What are we doing today? Yeah. So um, you really, and you really had a great transition there, I feel like. Yeah, I, I just tried to, you know, I was fortunate enough to work with some other people that also were working uh, a very successful composer. So I had insight on how to do things. I also knew the business well enough from being in the record companies hmm. to know what advertising was about. I knew what licensing was about. I knew what publishing How was about. How did you about. know about all of that? Because I just, I just, you're clearly really smart. And, and what's interesting though, I want to get this back to you. The, to me, the best professional athletes, I mean, like the LeBron James, the uh-huh. Kobe Bryant's, Bono of U2, Eddie Vedder, right. um, Although they're really ta- talented, their craft, they're also really smart and they're really aware. And I think I'm picking up on, I mean, I always knew you were smart, but I'm, 
I'm, I'm, but I'm feeling like you were really, Thank you. but I always, but I feel like you're, you were really aware of the transition that was going on in the, in, in the, in the record world. Well, I'm feeling smarter now just talking with you, <laughs> but um, I don't know. You know, I think we can always be smarter. Um, I think we can always know more. I wish I had known more and read more and studied more when I was even in the band. It was so easy to be like, oh, yes, we're in a band. I can just fly around on my jet. Right. That, that only happened <laughs> one time, by the way. It wasn't like we had a jet. all, And we paid $10,000 for the jet. So right. don't think it was a very glamorous <laughs> that a, existence. That was a great... $10,000, I would use that money now to actually build a home studio. Right, know? yeah, I know. It was spent on a jet for like literally two hours. Yeah. So don't... Kids at home listening, don't get your hopes up. Or just do and sell a lot of records right. on Instagram, and then you can buy yes. a jet for $10,000. Become an you know? Instagram influencer, um, and your world will change. Yeah. No, it was, it was also a time where it just happened to all those things kind of converge. You know, I was fortunate enough to be working with people. I knew a lot of musicians. I knew people in the creative world. Yeah. Um, well, this is really important. I, the thing that I think is more valuable now, which you're clearly proving back then, is the people you surround yourself with. Definitely. And we're surrounding ourselves with like Instagram and technology, but these relationships that you need to create and form, I mean, it's not a, although it's called Drake, it's, it's a machine and Drake is connected to so many different elements that make Drake what it is. And I think Mm -hmm. you are proving that point back in the mid 2000s, late 2000s up to 2010, that you really created a lot of relationships that helped turn your career into this machine of, of licensing and and creating music for commercials and television and, and film trailers. Yeah. And also, I mean, I, I always, I was fortunate early on, um, the friend I had who worked at the trailer house brought a group of composers together, uh, 12 of us, and said, hey, we're going to make a really amazing catalog of music to license for trailers. Right. And each each one of us out of those 12 did something different. Okay. You know, um, some was, there was some crossover. But he said to me, hey, I need you to do this thing with the drums. I need you to do these really crazy, ferocious drum tracks that go from zero to 60. And we designed the architecture of this, the math of it as it. And it, I was like using everything. Back then, I didn't even have all these samples that existed. I was like hitting the sides of wow. lawn chairs to, oh get, to get metal things and banging on gongs with hammers and two by fours on the ground and stomping on things and all my drums and everything. You know, I was using everything possible that I have to make that first collection of music. Wow. And it was used over and over and over for many years. And it sort of set the model in place of what I would continue to do today. And it also forced me as a creative person to take something that I had always done, drums, and look at it from a different angle. I wasn't just being a supportive drummer in a band for someone's song or in my band for that song. I was all now creating and using the drums to tell a story to picture. Yeah. So it was going to go... Right. And it was going to do that and more of that and more of that. And it was going to get more and more intense. And it was just going to like over the moon until you like were just 
blown out of your chair. Yes. And that's what works for trailers. And that's what works for TV. You know, and I've been doing that for many, many years and refining it and doing more of it, you know. And at the same time, I also took the relationships I had with musicians that had been in bands and guys that I knew and loved and wanted to work with and tried to like foster that and do more of that. And I do that today. Like I have a really great team of people. Like I'm not a singer, but Ryan's a great singer. So, and he sings in falsetto. So it's like, I can say, Hey, let's do a track like this song. I'm thinking of something, you know, here's, here's a drum beat. Oh, and I also started with my creative team that I work with, I started doing what's called the Dave Grohl method, okay. which is like, I write the whole song on drums. Because years ago, I read when Dave did this first Foo Fighters record, you know, he plays everything. Yeah. So he tracked everything on drums first. Okay. In that little Seattle studio, whatever right. it's called. And then he tracked the rest of the song. So I went, oh, I'll just lay out the whole drum track for my guys. Okay. Here's the intro, here's the verse, here's the B section, here's the stop, here's the chorus, here's the stop, here's the second shorter verse, here's the second B section shorter, here's, you know, because then I'm a stickler for math, and yes. songs are all about good math. You they really are, You yeah. don't take four minutes to get to the chorus. <laughs> no. If you're not there before, like, 40 seconds, I'm, like, checking my yes, watch. Yes, you need to get there fast. Going to get another cup of coffee. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? And now, now you can even start the song with the chorus. Right. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'll do this. And so I can send one of my co-writers a drum track and say, you know, this is what I'm thinking of. It's, like, kind of like a Roxy Music track, but I also need it to feel like this. And, you know, and just, like, I can work with great creative people and they'll send me back a sketch of something. And I'm like, cool, I love that. But why don't we try the chorus different? Why don't we, oh, I love that verse, but you know, that's a stronger melody if you do this, you know? Right. And we can be creative. And I have people in Hollywood. I have people in Seattle. I have people in Brooklyn and Sacramento. Do you know Phil Peterson, the cello, the cellist no. up in Seattle? No. Because okay. he's, he's played like on a, on a lot of... Very well, popular music. Probably my guys in Seattle know. <laughs> probably. You know, that. Um, so, so the advent of the digital technology meant that we could all collaborate. That yes. everybody else has a studio in their house of various degrees. They have mics and preamps and they have all their gear. And so all of a sudden it's like we're being creative again. We're not all in the same room. And I do miss that, like sweaty like bash it out kind of thing um but in a very practical creative like we are using our craft we are using the tools we're using our skill to create music and for me for me it really helps having that pipeline because i'm not the kind of songwriter where i have to go over to the park and (laughs) write a song yeah totally you know what i mean so for me it's like a creative person i've always thrived on having the avenue for the creative thing like when i get up in the morning and i go oh i gotta mix those 12 tracks because the deadline is coming up it really is a great motivator well we i think we need that also i and i love your comparison about math because it is you know i'm writing a book now and I, although I could spend the next, I remember meeting Jackson Brown. My uncle was friends with Jackson. I remember yeah. seeing him at the Barnes and Noble on Third Street Promenade. And I was in the middle of doing my second album and I was, it felt like it would never end. And he looks at me and he says, you know, a song is never done. 
And it's true. Like you can always tweak something. You can always edit right, it and right. make it better. So I oh, think yeah. being under those time constraints of, of having the chorus come in at 30 seconds, or I know I need to mix these songs by the end of Saturday. Super important. Or I want this fourth draft to be done by December 1st so I can just like send it out to people and then I can hear if this thing is any good. Yeah. Because you can get, I remember something about Jeff Buckley in the studio he just, he would never be done. He he right. just was always trying to refine. And there's this, ironically now, we are all about perfection. Yeah. But um, you do need as an artist that structure <coughs> to just get it done. Well, I totally agree. And I, I, I need that as a creative artist. And one thing about the old days of making records, you know, you only had so much time on a roll of tape. Mm, okay. I mean, you hear so many stories of Neil Young jamming on songs and the tape would just roll out <laughs> after 15 minutes or if it was like on slow speed after 30 minutes, you right. know. Um, and there's something to be said about that. Or even as an indie band, it was like you had to, the cost of tape was a factor. I remember yes. it was like $2,000 in tape cost per record. And so when you looked at the overall budget, you'd be like, you had to, budget that um and you're right now i can open up a session from last year or two years ago or five years and totally remix it and go oh wow yeah that could have been better yeah. it can always be better it can always exactly be better. That's but the that's point. not what it's about right and unfortunately with digital and the technology where everything is sort of in a liquid movable format you can go back to it but you're gonna have to commit to that book and actually say it's done and yeah. send it out to the printers. Um, just like I'm going to have to commit to those mixes I did yesterday yes. and not wake up and go today like, oh, hmm, should I redo that? Should I retract something? Yeah, I can always retract something. Yeah. But being a good creative artist is also knowing that for yourself. Unless you hmm. have an editor, a publisher, a co-writer, unless I'm working with a producer who says, why don't we try something else? Why don't we do it again? And if that's the dynamic we have, then we'll do that. Right. But I think you have to, you have to self-edit, you have to self-produce, and you have to set those deadlines and be it's done, and tomorrow I'll start something else. Yes. Wow. I think we actually um, gave people some really good advice just now. This is really cool. But I think, no, but I think it's really, really... Um, yeah, I think what gets lost is, and again, it can connect to Instagram, but there is this sort of perfect perfect world that everybody seems to be living in, and we want to reach that goal of perfection, whatever that is. Right. And then we don't know what's good or bad anymore, and and we don't know who to trust. But I do think it's important to not only, as we just said, trust that inner voice inside, but connect with those three, four, or five people that you really value their opinion. Right. And they'll be honest with you. And I said this earlier, we also live in a day and age where people are scared to say if something's bad or right. something could be better. So find that small group of people that you know will be honest with you, like, oh, God, that, that song could actually, it's too long, or yeah. that lyric is no good. Right. Uh, because I, I think... Staying creative, but also connecting with the few people that really are honest with you about um, your craft. Well, also, you know, if you read about artists that you 
have loved. Like I'm a huge Brian Eno fan, so I would always I saw him talk many years ago, and always loved his records and his books and things like that. You know, and um, or Leonard Cohen as a writer. If you read about Leonard, like just painstakingly slaving over every lyric before he said the song was finished or would sing it. And, you know, when you read his lyrics, you know that. There's yeah. not a word out of place. Every word is perfect and poignant and has meaning. And these are people that devoted their life to their craft. I don't think that there's any comparison, honestly, to what we're getting with Instagram. I don't think there ever will be. Wow. And, con- and I just think it's, in a way, it's just going to... You could just look at it as sort of fluff and a joke, and it will evaporate or it will find meaning for people, you know. And if it finds meaning or creates or helps people with meaning, then fantastic. And otherwise, it's like, does it really mean anything? two questions and then I want to talk about Neil Young really fast um, do you miss being in a be, touring and I mean I know you're older now so how do you satisfy I'm not older <laughs> but how do you satisfy obviously well that's the thing you know I, be, I got into DJing because yeah. restaurants and bars actually still value DJs and totally. I make, I oh, make, you make more money I make that, more yeah. money DJing I know you're smart well, but that's the thing. Yeah. You need to, just like you did in the mid-2000s and still do now, yeah. you have to be smart about what people are willing to pay for and how you can sort of navigate this shift that's happened in our culture. Maybe I should be a DJ. <laughs> Maybe you should. <laughs> Shh. I'm not going <laughs> to... Don't tell anyone. <laughs> but that's the thing. Am I, am I an amazing DJ and can I do all these slick and crazy mixes that other people... Maybe, maybe not, but I'm really good at reading a room and I have a huge library of music. And although I'm older than the 20 something out there, my experience with so much music in the 70s and 80s and being able to mix something from that to now and Cardi B going back to Michael Jackson and, and, and like, there's something to be said about Super that. Super cool, yeah. So um, I've navigated that shift in our culture and now I'm writing a book and, 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 and anyway, I don't. So my point is here, what, what do you miss about being in a band and how are you navigating even further the shift and how it connects to your creative craft? Um, well, in terms of the band thing or in terms of playing live, yeah, I, I, I think I do miss that. You know, there's no drug that replaces that walking on stage and there's like, 10,000 people sure. cheer for you. You're like blown away by it, you know, or in, in even the case, uh, I was telling someone about meeting David Bowie Wow! and we played with, with Bowie in Belgium and I had the treat of meeting him cause he came backstage to say hello. And I was just, you know, it was a great highlight. And then we played to like 20,000 people. So it never, it never gets old, you know, and that's why you would jump on the pirate ship and be exhausted and not sleep for three months because of that, you know, and it also is like a pirate ship and that's why people lose their mind and become addicted to other substances. But the addiction to that adrenaline is great. And it's really fun. It's also really fun. Like for me, I was playing in a band where it was me playing 
my stuff. Yeah. No one else was like, hey, play that a little different. It was me and the three of us being as whacked out weird as possible. Who wrote the songs for Grant, Grant Lee Grant, Buffalo? Grant was the writer. But yeah. you obviously were in the room. Yeah, and we and just and all made the parts up. And yeah. like he played it on guitar. And it was just three of us. Right. So it's like, you just do what. And, and it was also the kind of band where it was open to change every night. Yes. You know, those songs just grew and stretched and stretched out. So it was really a fun environment to play in. Yeah. Um, and even now, um, playing in the band Rusty Truck, we're playing this Sunday at the Mint. Right. I don't know if this will be on the air before then or not. Probably not. Probably not. But what's so funny is that, um, anyway, I, I love the Mint. So you're playing there on Sunday. Yeah, and, okay. and that's a really fun band. It's, it's a bigger band with more people in it, but it's kind of an alt-country vibe. And again, I play a bunch of weird stuff, mallets and brushes and drum sticks. You know, I'm making different sounds, and it's not really straight ahead. So it's fun for me. And it, it's just, a, it's... It's a nice like feeling of like a favorite clubhouse or your your best buddies when you all get on stage, you right. know, and you're making something in that moment that the the intangible thing that it could totally fall apart and fail miserably is what makes it great yes. on stage. The fact that it's like live theater, that someone might forget their lines or come in too early or count off the song wrong, you know what I mean? All those things make it really in the moment, yeah, which I think is really important these days, going back to the digital world and being inundated by stuff and do we know if it's good or bad, in that moment, in that room with that band or that club, that's all you have. And yeah. it's great. And even if they mess up and stop, Neil Young was great at this. In the middle, he launches into a song. It's this wrong tempo. He stops yes. and counts. He's like, one beat slower, you know what I mean? And you're like, you can't do that. And he's like, of course he can. Yeah, he's Neil he Young. He yeah. wants it to be right and feel good. And so that's like just what is so good about music when it's live. Is it's like you're there as an audience member. You are part of the creative experience. Yeah. You know, and I try to bring that into the work I'm doing now. I have to be creative every day. I have to think of new things. I have to reinvent the wheel. I have to reinvent my wheel of what I'm doing every day. I have to create with these co-writers that aren't in the room and go, hey, I like that. It doesn't feel done. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Or it, it's done. You know what I mean? And presented. And maybe I'll get a note back from someone who's also a creative person and say, hey, why don't we try this? Or could we do it a little bit more Mandarin? Yeah. Wow. It's interesting you bring up Neil Young, and the reason why I bring up Neil Young is that he does. Does he still live in Topanga? Because um, I read I read his me- the, the the book about him where he was like old man was about um, his neighbor neighbor when he lived in Topanga. Does he still live up here? No, I think that he lived here back in the heyday. You okay, know, there's like Joni Mitchell lived up here. Right, Neil Young lived here. I mean, I think a lot, Crosby, Stills and Nash. A lot of the like scene in the late 60s people were living here and in laurel canyon right um but no i did read that his house burned down he had a house wow i think it was in malibu okay like in the malibu calabasas area and unfortunately because he was online the other day really vocal about it Hmm. and they said his house burned down he did a concert so well unfortunate i bring up neil young again when i was getting into, and we'll close with this theme, and I bring up Neil Young because in that time when I 
became obsessed with Pearl Jam in the 90s. Right. I never knew about Neil Young. What? I, I, I swear to God. I didn't know about, about him. And I mean, I don't want to bore you with the reasons why. Okay. But I was a late bloomer to really getting into Led Zeppelin. Right. And okay. Neil Young. And um, so when I became aware of Pearl Jam, right. I remember them being on the MTV Video Music World uh, Awards. And Neil Young comes on stage and sings Keep on Rockin' in the Free World with Pearl Jam. Right. So that then opens up that whole rabbit hole for me of then right. moving back and, and, you know, Harvest and those first few records, of course, because I'm recording a podcast, the brain suddenly, the, I've noticed oh, yeah. my brain has a hard time of remembering things when I'm like live recording a podcast. Yeah, but I just, harder. those first few, after the gold rush. Yeah, Heart of Gold. Yeah. Heart of Gold. Um, needle and the damage done. So it's just... And I bring up Neil Young also because he, up until about five years ago, was trying to create a system where the quality of the music still... He wanted to create a, like an MP3 player or something where the quality of the music still sounded as good as the actual records. Correct. Ultimately, that failed. Yeah. Because how could it have been successful? People don't... Our, our culture is not made to to work that way. They don't know, <laughs> right? So, to me, Neil and those songs represent an ideal mm-hmm. in yeah. a weird sort of way. And then that whole becoming aware of the way that I found out about Neil and and how Pearl Jam obviously was influenced by his music, and then it brought me down that rabbit hole, and it really inspired me to write. Mm, yeah, so. Present day, what gives you? You're clearly more optimistic than I am, but what gives you hope that, despite Instagram and Spotify and what happened with Napster, and what gives you hope that people like me, um, your family, friends, are going to connect with those types of experiences that are that are truly life changing and inspiring. Well, I think from a music and art perspective, culturally, we will, those things will hold value, whether it's, you know, the paintings of the masters and impressionists and pop art or Picasso and Warhol and, you know, great songs from the 60s and 70s. Somehow, culturally, they mean something to us. So we, I think, are acknowledging that as a collective species and we will return to those things because of that. I mean, I see younger generation listening to music that I listened to when I was a teenager. Yeah. And I get a great smile on my face being like, yeah, you have to listen to Patti Smith and you have to listen to Joy Division and you have to listen to Blondie and all this great music that I listened to and Neil Young. And, you know, because it's they're amazing songs and amazing artists and I don't know what bands from this decade, you know, will be that. I don't know what music will hold that value for the next generation. But I know we've lived through a time in America of amazing, and the world, but in America, like, the, the music of the blues that came out of the South and came out of the industrial cities and then, and, 
everything that made that happen. And then the music of jazz was iconically American. It will never occur again. Yeah. And then that gives, you know, and then you come into the 60s and the 70s and pop art and rock and roll. And it's like, it's amazing when you think about it. And I think because it's this long time period and this evolution of music, it will always hold value and Mm. mean something to people. Yeah. So... I think with that, it's just people have to find it. And like you found Neil Young through Pearl Jam. It's amazing. Kids will find music. You know, I'll be interested to see when this generation, how do they find Neil Young? Yeah. You know, are they going to find it because um, Vampire Weekend does a song with them? Or (laughs) Cardi B? Cardi B does a, you know, samples a little bit of a Neil Young song. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or that might happen. Yeah. You know, let's hope so. And then it keeps getting recycled and people like are turned on to that. Yeah. So that's what it's about. And then lastly, where where are you hoping to be, you know, five years creatively? Do, do Could you see yourself trying to put a band together and write some new songs or um, the, the world of making trailers and, and oh is that satisfying you creatively or you're just you take it kind of one um, day or week at a time? No, I really like um, over the last couple of years, I've scored a few uh, short films, which were really satisfying in an in with a kind of odd combination of ingredients drums and cellos and Balinese and gamelan instruments and weird music boxes and things like that so I could see probably over the next decade doing hmm. more it's sort of ca- completely counter to like these giant trailer cues right. it's this more like ambient texture um percussion um and long instruments like I love taking a cello and distorting it and then putting an Ebo guitar on top of hmm. it and yeah. weird, weird things like that. Um, so I could see doing more, you know, film music. I'd like to do that. I'll continue to write for f- commercials and television and trailers. And, yeah. you know, I'm happy doing what I'm, what I'm doing and I have a good creative team of people that I get to collaborate with. So at the end of the day, it's fun. Yeah. It's still fun. Cool. Yeah. Well, Joey Peters... You can find him on Instagram at, is it just at Joey Peters? Uh, it's Joey Peters 99. Joey Peters 99. You won't find that much there, but you'll yeah. find some things. Like, yeah. I mean, like there's some nice pictures of food. Um, yeah. And, and uploads like um, this Tycho drumming record I've been working on. I uploaded that. That was really fun. I should talk about that because that was like, I wrote the whole record in my studio. So, like, I know Tycho. They're this. Was it there? Explain the project. Well, the project was me thinking that I wanted to do like this cinematic, really dramatic collection of Tycho music, which were drums and sound design, all geared for trailers and you know television, yeah, and film. And I I wrote twelve pieces of music, and I recorded them. Uh, I sort of sketched them all out in my studio. And then I went to a live, a really big live room and set up all kinds of drums and big Tycho drums and spent uh, about two two different consecutive weekends tracking drums all okay. day. It was pretty amazing. Like wow. Overdubs and overdubs in different parts. And it was really fun. And, and how could people... Go ahead. Uh, people won't really hear. It's not a commercial release. Okay. It'll just be released. You Actually... It might be out through Universal, but that's I'll you know that'll be later in next year, right? So, but it's all it'll be it'll be in films and trailers. Yeah, 
Wow. Yeah. Um, well, I feel really, um, as, as I said at the beginning, the podcast, I believe the way that people truly get to connect and know each other is through the simple conversation. And nowadays, people are connecting through quick texts and, and messages through Instagram oh God, I know. and through how many likes you get. And it's just not as deep as actually having a conversation. I know this was really enjoyable. It took you forever to get up here and have mm-hmm. a cup of coffee with me. No, I, I really, it's, it's interesting. Um, I yeah. believe in timing. And yeah. like two weeks ago, we had terrible fires. Right. And I, would have been a, I wouldn't have been able to come up here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and now it's, it's supposed to be like 80 degrees today. Oh. And in a couple of days, it's supposed to get rainy. And I, I know I just wouldn't have liked to drive up here in the rain because traffic in L.A. When just don't, people don't know how to drive in the rain out here. No. So, um, and then I was just thinking about, you know, Nirvana and that music. And, and, I'm, and, and I just, I, I feel really inspired. Good. Talking to you. Oh, well, good. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm inspired talking to you. I'm glad you're writing a book. Yeah. I can't wait to read it. It's obviously a huge satire of our weird culture. Um, but I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I think the art of conversation is lost. And I think the people in my life that I know are really talented and really interesting. And, and I do know that people are really responding to my podcast. That's awesome. And I think you are going to be really inspiring to a lot of listeners. So I really appreciate you coming on the Tower Facing Spiritual Spiral podcast. <laughs> I know you think the name is completely hysterical. Are you kidding? I'm a, a big Trent Reznor fan. So well, so you get the reference. Of course I nobody, do. Nobody's uh, said anything. Oh my God. That's, Nine the, Inch that's Nails the whole is, reason I'm here, Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> Nine Inch Nails is what it was. I mean, not as much. I don't like their music as much now. But... I loved Nine Inch Nails. And he's from Ohio, and I'm from Ohio. And The Downward Spiral was one of my favorite records. He's it a great artist. It changed my world, that album. And yeah. I obviously, the downward facing, our culture, people, you know, everybody's looking down at their phone. The downward facing dog is obviously the yoga reference. Oh, yeah. And the spiritual is, well, the spiritual spiral of our culture mm-hmm. going out of control. And then you have the reference, the downward spiral of one of my favorite Nine Inch Nails records of all time. All time, And of yeah. course it makes sense that you, being a drummer and musician and a huge music fan, got that reference. Oh my God, of course. Well, I think, you know, we'll, we'll, it's hard to stop talking once we start talking, but something that is missing, and you're probably picking up on it, is through music, through digital, through phones is the sheer energy factor. And part of what made rock and roll so good is that it was a voice of a generation of people kind of yelling and saying, fuck you to the system. You know what I mean? And you respond to that song. You grew up in Ohio. Trent grew up in Ohio. What the heck are you going to do in Ohio if you don't start a loud rock and roll band right. and make noise and say, no, I don't want to go to work at a factory. I mean, we have to remember that. It's like it's a countercultural thing. And you can't just get sucked into your shiny gadget and then go shopping and go to your job. Yeah. And that's what actually they want people to do. So in a way, it's a great distractor that keeps people 
towing the line. Yes. So I would say, if anything, be way more rebellious and use it to like overthrow the government and be countercultural and start a really loud rock band. And yeah. Blow things up. Not literally. <laughs> Not but, literally. But you know. But emotionally. But that's emotionally, we're so cautious. Cultu- now. Yeah, we're so cautious, and even bands like bands aren't that dangerous anymore. No. You know, where are the really dangerous bands? Yeah. You know, I mean, one one thing that was really fun about playing live in Granley Buffalo is we did a cover of a Neil Young song called For the Turnstiles. Hmm. And it was really loud and raw and punk rock. And we did it with like a distorted banjo and a big kick drum. And it was just super fun to play. Yes. That's the thing. Neil's songs can be interpreted in a myriad of ways. And so anybody can do them and they're just great. And yeah. we need more of that. We need kids starting like loud, dangerous bands. Yeah. So if you're listening out there, please do it. Yes. Report back to me. <laughs> wow. Well, it's, I think you're making the point. I could keep talking to you forever about music. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show. I'm positive it's going to inspire people. Thank you. I appreciate it. And um, maybe we'll have this conversation a a year from now. We'll check back in. Let's do it. We'll do do round two. I'm up for that. Well, thanks again, Joy, for coming on the show. Thank you, Eddie. Yep.